Hello, and welcome to a mini episode of Gallery 44's podcast. I'm your host, Lillian O'Brien Davis, curator of exhibitions and public programs at Gallery 44. This year, we're digging deeper into the programming we're presenting in our physical space, exploring each exhibition in depth with the artists who created the work. This season, we'll be exploring how to ask a question. I'm interested in exploring how I can get better at asking questions, learning how to speak up at the right moments, shaking off imposter syndrome, and managing the pressure of always looking ahead to the next thing. I'm here to be more present, slowing down to build better connections. Join me and maybe we can figure things out together. On today's mini episode, we'll be exploring our current vitrines exhibition, Small House, featuring the work of artist Layla Hewick. Our vitrines gallery are located just outside our main gallery at 401 Richmond. They are meant to be sites of experimentation where artists can explore concepts outside of a formal gallery context. Today, I'm speaking with Layla Hewick, a Toronto-based digital artist. After a joint BFA from York University and University of Toronto, she attended law school, continuing to practice art throughout her law career. In 2004, she founded Cream Gallery in Winnipeg. In 2017, Hewick obtained an MFA in documentary media from Ryerson University. The recipient of multiple Ontario Arts Council and Canada Council Awards, her work has been exhibited in numerous solo and group shows. In 2019, her large-scale collage installation, Clone, was selected as a featured exhibit in the Scotiabank Contact Photography Festival. She is a member of Toronto's Patch Project. Her book works are available at Swipe and Art Metropole in Toronto and the Winnipeg Art Gallery and Plugin ICA in Winnipeg. Her practice includes commissions and public art, and she has mounted two outdoor installations in Toronto since 2020, Secret Fountains and Denizens. Her work will be featured on construction hoarding in spring 2022 at Young and Davisville in Toronto. Loch Ness, a large-scale public artwork, will be installed in June 2022 at St. John International Airport, New Brunswick, with the support of the Canada Council for the Arts. The series on view at Gallery 44, Small House, depicts the interior of a 1960s Toronto home, which was abandoned for five years prior to its sale. The house, located in Toronto's Forest Hill neighborhood, which once belonged to a rabbi and his family, was listed for sale in completely original condition. Layla Hewick returned to photograph the house four times as its contents were gradually removed, including for the last time on the day prior to the closing of the sale. For Hewick, the home and its contents continued existence in its original layout sits at the crack between preservationism and kitsch. This project, coinciding with the agoraphobia of the COVID pandemic, marked a period of the artist turning inward in their practice and reflecting on what home or the interior might represent. Welcome, Leela. I'm so glad you could join me today and that we get to talk a little bit more about your work. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) So the first question I have for you is, I was wondering if you could tell me a bit more about how you got connected with this vacant house. It seems to me so remarkable that there might be a house here in Toronto that was untouched from the 1960s. How did you find out about this? Um, Well, one of the things that I don't tell people in the arts unless there's a business reason, is that I'm also a real estate agent. And I don't tell people in real estate that I'm an artist unless they're buying stuff for their property, buying images or artworks. 
So yeah, I'm a real estate agent and uh, I had been doing that off and on for a number of years in addition to many other things, being a lawyer and a lot of stuff that I've been doing. But the real estate is kind of in my blood. My grandmother uh, was, when she came over from Europe, was like a house flipper and ended up building up some family wealth that way. So I'm privileged to have benefited from that. Uh, It's helped me with my education and my career to get, you know, to get all the stuff in place, which has made me more productive now. Anyway, I am a real estate agent. And one of the things I do is I use my license to be able to access things that other people don't get to see. So what I'll do sometimes is research homes using certain search terms, like original condition or uh, 1960s. I'm sure most of your viewers will have used a search engine like realtor.ca. I have a specific one that gives me internal information and just... I browse around. Um, I have some other projects that um, are going on. And this particular home, the subject home, uh, what I'm doing is um, I'm kind of doing different homes. And this is the first published work of what will be a larger collection. So the collection of will be of different homes. So sometimes I have other weird stuff I do. Like I have a series of images I'm collecting, which are actually images that I didn't take, but they're pictures on the internet, on sales websites, where someone has taken a picture purportedly to sell the home, but they're very odd pictures and ones would would not normally be associated with showing a home at its best. On that note, there's always the, for me, like from, I guess, a documentary perspective, you're really trying to walk the line between making fun of something and making something look pathetic for no good reason or showing it in its richness and variation. So, you know, I have one image again from this other series where it's called Art House, that series. So just as a joke. So somebody else's picture where there's a ton of children's stuffed animals and toys all over the place incongruously. It's not messy or dirty. It's just odd. So that's, that's one of the ways that I take advantage of this opportunity. So this home is, to me, the epitome of what somebody at that time was allowed to do and still be considered to be in good taste. Because if you think about it, as a rabbi, he was a conservative rabbi, and for your listeners who don't know the difference uh, Judaism has got many uh, flavors, and so people often think of a rabbi as being a very pious Orthodox man who maybe the wearing a black hat and a, with a long beard. That's the more Orthodox version. Th- this was a conservative rabbi, so he might have just looked like a man walking down the street with a hat, uh, and he would have entertained in his home. He would have had people over for dinner, and it would have been in his interest to see him a little bit on the hip side because he was wanting to draw people in and to have them involved in the synagogue. So in short, uh, in short, I happen to be a real estate agent and have access to not only finding out information, but attending homes. And of course, I always get permission to take pictures and publish pictures in writing. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's an amazing access and, and what a wonderful time capsule. 
Something you mentioned in your correspondence is that your interest in sharing with people about your experience as an artist working with a disability. And I was wondering if you wanted to expand a bit more on what that experience has been like for you. Yes, um, I was diagnosed relatively late in life with ADD. Most people who meet me are surprised when I bring that up just because, um, first of all, being a woman and being older in my day, in any case, learning disabilities were often not caught. And because as a young child and a young student, I did well in school, mostly. Back in those days, you even skipped a grade, which was a disaster. And I actually, they, they oh, me and a couple of my buddies there were smart. So they said, oh, let's skip her a grade. But of course, that didn't help me really, because what it did was I meant I missed out certain key learning tools uh, around grade four. So for the rest of my life, I've sort of struggled with certain types of focus, but where I did well, I did very well. So in other words, I got through high school, I got through university, I got through law school, and I had a law career. But you know, I would lose a lot of jobs and be very frustrated. Paperwork would drive me crazy. So it, it was certainly a problem. And then, as I say, eventually, I was diagnosed with the problem. As an artist, um, and as a privileged person, meaning I no longer have to earn a ton of money, I'm I don't, I, I can spend time on my art. That is truly the greatest privilege that I have right now. And I'm very keenly aware of it. I also, th my privilege gives me the ability to retain support. So I have an assistant when I need one. The Canada Council and the Ontario Arts Council have been fairly generous with me since I graduated. And they're also very supportive. They understand that if your work is decent, then you'll probably do better and produce more of what they're giving you money for if you get a little extra help and they fund certain things. So for me, to answer your question, the downside of being a disabled artist is I experience frustration, but most artists experience frustration. My particular problem is with technology and organization. So, you know, um, I actually have my assistant here in the studio right now, as we speak, he is going through, you know, 500,000 photo files uh, and trying to organize them and pull certain things out so that if I actually, somebody asks for a print, I can actually lay my hand on it. When you're disabled, there's a constant, uh, with my type of disability, there's a constant sense of panic of losing things and misplacing things and you go to all this effort. So that's a stress. But the plus side for me is that I have a mental freedom. I've experimented enough and made enough mistakes to know that generally when I create photographs and a large part of my practice now is digital painting and digital collage, which evolved out of mistakes made in Photoshop. Uh, I do construction hoarding art and other public art, which is really a big, big part of my practice now. But a lot of the good stuff comes from something going wrong. So when I'm in Photoshop and I try to erase something, but I can't remember, oh, is that control A, delete? I can't remember. Then I end up making some kind of mess or cutting something out. And then if I look at the screen, ultimately as a painter, which I still paint, you just have to look at what you're doing and stop and say, hey, just because I didn't intend that, wow, it looks good. So one of the biggest pieces of advice I always give younger artists who may ask about my process is that I think the worst kind of art is the one where you have an idea, you plan, you do it, 
you execute the idea you planned and you walk away. It's usually dull. If you don't give into the errors, mistakes, and the sort of sidecars that come up, the work is often very stale. Sometimes artists will focus on making a certain type of picture over and over and over again, making the picture technically perfect and rejecting errors and rejecting anomalies in images. And uh, my opinion is that often leads to kind of stale work and work that people go, oh, see it, flip, next, next, next. You, you have to be able to surprise a viewer because as we all know, 5 billion pictures are taken every day in the world. And uh, how are you going to make yours stand out other than to do something that surprises people? I'm curious about your relationship to photography. What got you interested in the medium? Well, I um, have been an artist my whole life, but I was not a photographer as a young person, you know, or in, in my earlier university career. I don't know, it just didn't appeal to me. I had a gallery for a time in Winnipeg and got to know uh, a lot of pretty well-known Manitoba artists. At, at that point in my career, when I did art, it was mostly painting. I would take pictures like anybody else. And I got to know an artist named William Eakin, who's a very well-known Canadian artist. I showed some of his work there. He's represented here in Toronto at Stephen Bulger Gallery. And he became a very, very close friend. He's one of my best friends. And I think what happened was, is I'd gone on a trip to Europe and I just sent him some pictures back. And he was like, what are you doing? Like, why aren't you doing this? Those are, those are interesting. And uh, he mentored me for a number of years um, and we did and continued to do projects together. And so frankly, without him, there would be no photography career. I also ended up going to uh, Ryerson, uh, now TMU, at his suggestion um, to do the documentary media program there. Uh, I have mixed feelings about the program and its value in general. But uh, I, I got value out of it because at that stage of my life, I was no longer a lawyer. And when you start being an artist a little later in life, you have to, uh, and I, I'm also disabled, so I, um, which I guess is another issue, but um, what my disability is ADD. So if I don't buckle down, like those are all very pejorative terms that are often applied to people with my type of disability, that's a pejorative term buckle down, concentrate, focus, it's often imperative. But literally, I have to make a decision to focus. If I make a decision to focus, I'm more likely to have a good outcome along with support. So the idea of an MFA, my MFA was in fact done about a mid-century architect here in Toronto. His name is Peter Dickinson, and he designed a number of buildings um, in Toronto. He was a British guy, and he died at in his 30s of lung cancer, but he'd put up like 200 buildings. Your listeners will likely be familiar with some of them if they're from Toronto at all. The Sony Centre, um, the Juvenile Courthouse, Benvenuto Restaurant. And in fact, the, the building that I live in, uh, which is a, an older 10-story apartment building, uh, that's what got me going. He designed this great apartment. So I'm really uh, embedded in interiors and some and exteriors of mid-century buildings and have been since, uh, you know, 2015 when I started my uh, thesis. So that's it. What did you think? Drop us a line with your thoughts on today's pod. You can reach me at Lillian at gallery44.org or follow us on Instagram at gallery44photo. 
This podcast was written, edited, and presented by Lillian O'Brien Davis. That's me. Co-produced with Alana Traficante. Edited by Aaron Hutchinson. Special thanks to Respectful Child for the sweet tunes. We acknowledge the support of the Canada Council for the Arts. Talk to you next time.